probably one of the images that is, I think we need to turn this down a little bit. Try again. Does it sound a little bit better? Everyone, you can hear me okay? Yep. A little bit louder? Yeah. A little bit louder? Louder still? Does it sound good? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, hear me okay? Okay. Thank you. One of the images that's probably being thought about a lot this particular New Year's Eve is from the movie 2001 and um, the embryo at the end hurling through space and of course we're also hurling through space relative to the Sun I think it's 6,600 miles per hour faster than any of our cars And when the movie 2001 was produced, or the book was written, 2001 was just someone's imagination. And the imagination was quite evocative for many of us. And the future didn't become quite like the movie, but we're still hurling through space waiting for the next transformation. The rich imagination that imagine the possibility of a future, a future of great transformation. There's a um, poem by William Carl, Carlos Williams called Thursday. I don't know why it's called Thursday. Thursday is an arbitrary designation. Thor's Day. Anyway, the poem is called Thursday. I have had a dream like others, and it has come to nothing, so that I remain now carelessly with my feet planted on the ground and look up at the sky feeling my clothes about me, the weight of my body in my shoes, the rim of my hat, air passing in and out at my nose, and decide to dream no more. So it could have been written as if he was on retreat, feeling his feet on the ground, the simplicity of just the ground, the contact with your feet looking at the sky that I'm sure most of you have looked to spend some, spend, spend some time looking at and noticing here at Spirit Rock. Feeling maybe the touch of the clothes. Maybe as you breathe, you can feel the clothes, your shirt, moving against your skin. The weight of, of your bodies and your shoes. The air passing in and out as you breathe. Very, very simple mundane experiences that We've 
come back to over and over again here in the retreat in small ways, simple ways. And perhaps we've also noticed how much we dream and how much we enter into our imagination. And maybe some of us, maybe all too naively, have made vows, I will dream no more. But when I read this poem by uh, Williams, it, it kind of did a double, I thought a double, not a double take, but a, I had two reactions to it. One was more the kind of the Vipassana person in me. It was, oh yeah, great. Just the simplicity of the moment and our sensory experiences and liberated from all the dreaming, all the dreams. I will dream no more. The other part of me was, I felt a little bit sad at the end of the poem, that someone would decide to dream no more. Because dreaming, I think, is a very important part of being a human being. The imagination that can imagine possibilities and potential, that can create wonderful connections between things. I think uh, in, in those of us practicing Vipassana know all too well the great dangers of the imagination. We've all, I think all of us have been, have been surprised and maybe woken up in the middle of our fantasy, our, our virtual dreams, Vipassana romances, Vipassana vendettas, our delusions of grandeur, our delusions of opposite of whatever that is. And hopefully we've all woken up when I know when I was a relatively young Dharma student, I gave some really great Dharma talks. No one ever heard them. <laughs> I tended to give them I tended to give them my best Dharma talks while I was listening to great teachers give theirs. <laughs> so we live in our dreams. And one of the classic descriptions of dream, dream world or the power of the imagination is of a man who's living in a hut in the, in, the, in the forest and he hears some little bit of rustling of the leaves outside. Maybe some leaves fall onto the roof of his little hut. And he wakes up and he's worried that maybe that's a thief coming to get him at night. And then he notices the, the pattern of light against the window and it seems a little bit like the shape of a person. And he's convinced that it's a thief there and he's really frightened. And then the laboring cat kind of jumps up on the porch, big thud, at which point he either runs away screaming or has a heart attack. And there was no thief. It was just a, a tremendous power of the imagination. The whole sense of self, the self-image that we create, is really, for the most part, a tremendous feat of the imagination to do that. And we train ourselves in Vipassana to wake up from the dream world, the imaginary world, and begin seeing things much more directly, much more simply. And in doing that, hopefully, see the tremendous possibility of peace and joy and compassion that's possible every moment. 
So we try to wake up. We try to be present. We, we stay with our steps. We stay with our breath. We stay with the weight of our body, the feeling of our clothes. Using those very simple, basic building blocks of experience from which everything else is built in the conceptual world. We come back to those raw building blocks, helping us to wake up. But then, Adair Lara writes, I'm starting to resent being told to live in the moment. A multitude of books glut the stores, vipassana teachers everywhere, all trying to bully us into applying this Zen insight to our lives. When I hear such advice, I want to say, well, I was going to live in the moment, but now you ruined it by telling me to. I myself did a book called Slowing Down in, the, in a Speeded Up World, filled with hundreds of excellent suggestions from ordinary people for how to do just that, how to notice when you're happy. After I wrote it, I tried following the advice in it. I tried to, pass, I, I tried to pay attention to the warmth of the water as I rinsed clothes, rinsed dishes, to the sight of red roses against a blue sky, to the sight of wet clothes billowing on a line. I tried to remember to take my coffee out on the porch in the early morning and enjoy the light. The result was not a more serene Zen-like me. The result, result was a more guilty me. I'd stand there fidgeting out on my porch, trying not to look at my watch and be annoyed to find that I couldn't even take five minutes to enjoy the morning without wanting to be on to the next thing. Enjoyed the morning light, check. (laughs) Noted that, let's go on. But, you know, hopefully also you have a tremendous appreciation of the power and the joy of standing there, five minutes, ten minutes. It's maybe relatively easy here at Spirit Rock to do that, but when you get home, how quickly you get caught up. But this teaching of ours, of just being in the present moment, coming back and noticing the simplicity of the breath and the sensations, and <coughs> waking up from an imaginary world, can perhaps leave us with the impression that there is no place, no room for our imagination in a spiritual life, in a a wakeful human life. And I think that if we have that notion, we shortchange our life dramatically. We limit and narrow the scope of what it means to be a human being. There's a lot of benefit to that narrowing, and we do that on retreat. It's phenomenally powerful to narrow what we do and come back and just to, the, 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 you know, to the raw building blocks of our lives. But then, I remember when I came back from Burma, after I'd done this practice for eight months, nonstop, slowed down, everything was done really slowly. I remember going, going into a bank in Market Street in San Francisco, opening the door, lifting my arm, reaching for the door, <laughs> opening the door. And then I kind of woke up from that dream, the Vipassana dream. <laughs> it just wasn't appropriate. 
that, that, that detail of staying in kind of that kind of moment-to-moment mindfulness and Market Street opening the Bank of America door. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say here is that um, the imagination is a great trap and causes tremendous amount of suffering for us. But the imagination is also something really beautiful. And not only beautiful because in and of itself, but I think it's actually also very important for a spiritual life. Without the imagination, I think that the, a lot of the inspiration, healthy, appropriate inspiration and passion for practice has a difficulty being born. I think that compassion, the strength of a person's compassion, is in, has in part, in part to do with the strength of a person's imagination. Imagination coupled together with an ability to stay really present for the details of the present moment, for what's actually happening right now. So not being lost in a dream, but rather being present for reality as, it, as, we, as we see it, as we meet another person. But then let that present reality be moved through the, the world of our imagination. We, compassion, I think, has a lot to do with imagining what it's like to be in that person's shoes. I saw, you know, I don't know, I saw a photograph today in the newspaper of a young father holding in his arms the the corpse of his young three-year-old child that had drowned. And I could imagine in a way that now that I have a three-year-old, I can imagine in a way that I could never before the grief, the sorrow of that father. The imagination, I think, you know, the, I think our world needs people who can imagine more. Without, the, without a stronger imagination, I don't think we'll feel the magnitude of what goes on in this planet. Someone once said recently, or, wrote, or I read, the teaching to be here now is ideal for the consumer society. Just focus on the present, on your desires to get them fulfilled. But I, I think that and if, if, if you don't engage your imagination in wholesome and healthy, skillful ways, there's a lot of people out there who will fill it with something else. Our society is filled with people who are phenomenally skilled at paying to get your attention and then filling your attention with their imagination, what they want, what they, what they want you to, be, to have in your imagination. So we learn to see that, of course, and the power of mindfulness is to see the difference between being present for things as they are versus being present and, and our concepts and ideas get filled. But we don't want to abandon our imaginative powers entirely. We want to learn how to channel them and use them in ways that are healthy. To continue with uh, Adair Lara's article, she says, the truth is we humans come equipped with imaginations so vivid that our imagined or remembered moments are often precisely what enrich the moment as it is happening. I remember sitting in a beam of sunlight 
from an open window in a Parisian flat on an August morning last year, waiting for Bill and our friend Frank to come back from returning a rental car, and listening to a Julian Clerk song that I used to listen to when I used to live in Paris at the age of 20. I was feeling absolutely happy in that moment, with the sun on my neck and the music and Paris waiting. I was experiencing the moment fully, but the moment was made up partly of the memories evoked by the song and the anticipation of a day walking around Paris with Bill and Frank. There's a lot of richness, kind of depth, multidimensionality of life that comes when we can use our imagination. And there's a lot of dead ends when our imagination takes over. The Buddha, I think, was a man of tremendous imagination. Otherwise, he wouldn't have pursued this phenomenal quest that he pursued. To imagine the possibility of being freed from suffering, be freed of greed and hate, to imagine the possibility of being filled with love or compassion, could certainly be oppressive, that imagination, if we, if we measure it against our, our self-conscious, self-consciousness or self-worth or whatever. But it also can, it can really enliven and put fire under our determination. Oh, that's possible. I can imagine that's possible. The wonderful song by John Lennon, Imagine. One of the things that, that strikes me about that song is most of the things that he imagines in that song is the absence of things. He imagines what it would be like in a world without any religion. He imagines what it would be like a world without countries, a world in which there's nothing to kill or die for. Imagine a world of no possessions, where there's no greed or hunger. That's not in a kind of imagination I think you get lost in. Imagine, imagine that possibility. I think there's a, a power where the imagination can bring us to the end of imagination. We can imagine what it'd be like to live without imagination and be tremendously inspired by that. The imagination of, of things and possessions and fear. So we come now to the to a new <clears throat> millennia, and it's just a figment of your imagination, and everyone else, a lot of other people's. Nothing is going to happen at midnight. <laughs> it has no cosmological significance. It doesn't mark, you know, someone said January 3rd is more interesting because that's the day that um, the earth is closest or furthest or something from the sun. Furthest, the perihedron, something like that. You know, so we should be, that's more interesting to celebrate, but this particular night tonight, I mean, just like cosmological, 
you know, it has no significance. <laughs> and, you know, it has no importance in the Jewish calendar, right? This day, right? I mean, you couldn't care less. <laughs> and the Chinese, I mean, the Chinese couldn't care less about this day. I mean, it's nothing to do with their calendar. And the and the Thais have a different the Thais have a different calendar, and the Mayans have a different calendar, and the Buddhists have a different calendar, and we're really confused about our calendar. After all, December is supposed to be it literally means the tenth month. <laughs> Boy, are we confused! And November means the ninth month. October is the eighth, and September is the seventh. You know, so what are we doing? You know, we're completely confused. Not only, you know, we're not celebrating nothing, but we're confused about it. (laughs) New Year's Eve in our culture is just a convention. And part of the tremendous power of Buddhist practice is to really cut through and see conventions for what they are and to pull the rug from under them. But once the rug has been pulled away from convention, then we invite them back. And so, we invite them back with our imagination. We imagine, how can we use this in ways that are helpful for us and as a society? Conventions also connect us, bring us together. And so we sit here and we all of us have come to this place from all over the country and the world. And it's pretty phenomenal that something brought us together here. It's pretty phenomenal that we live in a, in a world where we're so phenomenally interdependent with each other. And it's a wonderful, terrible paradox that in the society in the world, our society here in California, which is probably the most dependent on its survival on other people. We don't grow our own food particularly. Most of us, you know, go to Safeway. That we tend to have the least sense of that level of interconnectedness. At least our imagination is often the poorest. People who grow their own food and farms often feel it, feel grateful. So we can use conventions, we can invite them back often to remind us of our connection with each other, our shared life, and how we create life together. And we create the convention, we create a calendar. And perhaps in that we create and share certain elements together, they're the threads that connect us. They're the opportunities to connect us. And so we can use our imagination to invite back this wonderful convention of New Year's Eve. And say, how would this really be useful? How is it that this particular convention, my participating in it, connects me with all the other people in the world who've chosen to participate in this calendar or other conventions? Can these conventions be lines of love between all of us, lines of appreciation, of gratitude, lines of delight, 
So New Year's Eve doesn't exist, but you've all decided to stay up for it. (laughs) So we're sharing in this wonderful event. And so as we spend this last half an hour of somebody's millennia, maybe we can reflect a little bit, use our imagination to imagine all the conventions that you live by, all the imaginings that you've adopted from society and from yourself, and see, imagine if all of those conventions can be used in the service of the well-being of all beings. May all beings be happy. May all beings be filled with joy. May all beings be at peace. May all beings everywhere be happy. So now, I'm going to teach you a a short chant of loving-kindness. And once we all know it, then the teachers are going to bravely, courageously lead you out through those doors. And you can follow us. And what we can do is you can kind of follow, maybe the front rows can come first, and the second row and the third row, so we're not all crowding, kind of orderly, kind of, and people in the back can sit quietly and mindfully or not. And then um, we're all going to follow, just follow a line out, and we'll go out with your pieces of paper, and we'll throw them into the bonfire. And as we go out to the building lobby, I would like you to go out two by two, and then when you come by the bonfire, both of you together throw your piece of paper in, and then keep walking, because we don't have a lot of time, and if people lingered, um, as we want to do, and uh, we would be here until next millennia. So just kind of, in a matter of fact, kind of direct way, go out there and throw your paper in and, and then walk back in again. And then you'll be given um, candles and protection cords. Come in and, um, and come back and just sit in your place. Come back in your place and the candle in front of you and for the next step. So the chant is, may all beings be happy. Sabe, sata, Suki Hontu. Saba means Sabe means all. Sata means beings. Suki means happiness. And Hontu means something like may they be. May. So I'll do word, one word at a time and you can repeat and then um, we'll do it all together. Sabe. Satam, Suki, Hontu, Sabe, Sata, Suki, Hontu, Sabe, Sata. And quieter. Sabe, Sada, 